As uh, Charlie mentioned in the worship time, we're starting a series on the book of Acts. Charlie said he's looking at it as an adventure. The book of Acts is an interesting book. One, you're looking at the transition from a Jewish, tight-knit, traditional group of men that transitioned to include Gentiles whom all of them loathed at the beginning. The book of Acts by one author was described as clumsy people learning how to dance. <laughs> so, let's take a look at the word. The first account I composed the office about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. And gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard of from me, for John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was departing, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them, and they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven." Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And at this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, a gathering of about 120 persons was there all together, and he said, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his portion in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language that field was called Hakeldama, that is, field of blood." 
For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate and let no man dwell in it and his office let another man take. It is therefore necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these should become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, who knowest the hearts of all men, show which one of these two thou hast chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Let's pray for the Tom's teaching. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord God, for your word. We thank you that it is true, that we can live by it, that we can profit from it, that we can grow in our understanding of you and your grace and mercy to us. We pray for Tom as he speaks, that the Holy Spirit through him would convey your word that we hear for our good and for your glory. For it's in your name, Lord, we pray. Amen. Good morning. I love that Charlie said uh, we're embarking on an adventure here. I agree with that completely. Um, the book of Acts was last taught in this room back in 2005 by Bob Deffenbaugh, uh, one, of, one of my two favorite series that Bob did uh, while well, I sat under his teaching for nearly 27 years. Now, some of you may wonder why we would be teaching this book again when there are other books of the Bible that we have not taught uh, ever. Well, I and all of the elders believe that Acts is a book that the local body needs to revisit periodically. This is, uh, this is the book that, it, that reveals how uh, the Holy Spirit began and continued to work in the church to spread the gospel, to, to advance the kingdom of God across the world. And we need to know what this book has to tell us the book was authored by Luke. Uh, the authorship of, of the Gospel of Luke and of the book of Acts was essentially undisputed in the early church. In a strict sense, the book of Acts is a sequel to Luke's Gospel. In the broader sense, it's a sequel to all of the Gospel accounts. Now, uh, something some people don't realize is that if you, if you go based on just simple word count, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts make up 28% of the New Testament. That is more than the writings of the Apostle Paul. Uh, now, what do we know about this man, Luke? Well, based on Colossians 4, verses 10 to 14, uh, and I'll let you read that on your own, many have concluded that Luke was actually a Gentile, which would make him the only known Gentile that was used by God to write to record and to deliver any portion of God's Word. In Romans 3, verse 2, Paul makes the statement that the Jews were, quote, entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, it's possible that that is a statement that's generally true and that Luke is an exception. I don't believe Luke is, is an exception, personally. 
I won't go to the wall for this, but I have the very strong opinion that Luke was a Greek-speaking Jew, and that that's the distinction that Paul is making in Colossians chapter 4. Luke is a Greek-speaking Jew. There's an excellent article on this by Thomas McCall. If you want the link, I'll send it to you. Just let me know. Luke is mentioned by name only three times in the New Testament, Colossians, 2 Timothy, and Philemon. In Colossians 4.14, Paul refers to him as the beloved physician. So Luke was a doctor. He was a medical doctor. In the introductions to both of his books, we learn that under the superintending work of the Holy Spirit, Luke carefully and meticulously gathered testimony from many trusted sources before writing down what he has given to the church for all generations. In the opening verses of his gospel, he explains that he compiled his gospel account from the testimony of, quote, those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, the word being Jesus. From early in Paul's second missionary journey, Luke was a faithful and trusted co-worker to the apostle Paul. And Luke remained with Paul through the time of imprisonment and all the way to the to the end of Paul's life. Um, The audience to whom Luke is writing is very interesting. In both the Gospel and in Acts, he begins by referring to this this name Theophilus. In Luke, he says he's writing to most excellent Theophilus. It's another interesting little little thing here because the the Greek word Theophilus simply means lover of God. Now, I'm not alone in believing that Luke was using that word to represent every believer, that he wasn't talking about a specific human being. He was talking about every lover of God. Um, and again, I won't go to the wall on that, but that's, that's what I think is going on here. The importance to the church of the, gospel, of, of the book of Acts uh, is just incalculable. We could do a whole message just on that one question, how important this book is. But we'll see that importance put on display in many different ways as we work through the book. For this morning, I just want to mention a few of the big picture distinctives up front of of the book of Acts. Acts does for the New Testament epistles what the books of Kings and Chronicles did for the Old Testament prophetic books. It acts uniquely provides the historical grid for the New Testament epistles. It tells us what was going on in the lives of the people who wrote the epistles and the lives of the people to whom they refer, those those writers refer. Acts also gives us several amazing uh, examples of gospel messages presented in different contexts and to different categories of people. And there's a lot we can learn from those presentations. But the one distinctive of the book of Acts that I want to draw your attention to most pointedly as we begin this study is that Acts lays out for us the historical playing out of the marvelous promise by the Father and the Son to send the Holy Spirit to equip and to empower Christ's church. That's you and me. So that we could do all that God has assigned to us. In the book of Acts, we get to see that promise of the Spirit played out in real events that happened in the first generation of believers. And that, 
I believe that above all else is what makes this book so powerfully important for every believer to know exceedingly well. Now, as I see it, there are two, <laughs> there are two greatest handoffs of all time recorded in Scripture. You might think of others, but there's two I have in mind. The first greatest handoff was when God the Father handed off the revelation of God to the incarnate Son. John 1.14, and the Word, Jesus, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18 says, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has he has literally, he, he has exegeted him. He has made him known to mankind. So the first handoff, the first of the two greatest handoffs as I see it, was the revealing of God to man most clearly in the person of the incarnate Son. The other greatest handoff of all time, I believe, was when Jesus handed off the creation and equipping of his church to the Holy Spirit. That's what these first two chapters of Acts and really all of the book of Acts are about. They're about this marvelous handoff. Jesus handed off the, the ongoing creation of his church and the equipping and empowering of his church to the Holy Spirit. And it's very important that we understand that. If you'll pardon a football allusion, Acts chapter 1 is where Jesus calls the play for that second of the two greatest handoffs of all time. And Acts chapter 2 is where the play gets executed. Luke begins the book of Acts on the day of Jesus' ascension into heaven. And we could spend a few messages just on the ascension, but we're not going to do that. Uh, I love uh, John Piper says the ascension is the detonator that releases the explosion of the gospel. That's really cool. The ascension came 40 days after Jesus' resurrection happened at a place called Mount Olivet, specifically in a city on Mount Olivet known as Bethany. This was about an hour's walk from Jerusalem, as Luke points out. In the final verses of his gospel, Luke records these words of Jesus to his disciples, starting at Luke 24, 44. Jesus said to his disciples, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. It's amazing how many times the New Testament says that you can know about Jesus from the Old Testament. Then Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem, beginning from Jerusalem. And he said, you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay, literally, you are to sit, sit, stay, in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. You were to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. In Acts chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Luke says, To these, to the disciples, the apostles he also, whom he had chosen, he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many compelling proofs, 
appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. And gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. So both at the end of Luke and at the beginning of Acts, the command that Jesus gave to his new baby church, as recorded in those both passages, is the command to do what? To wait. Command to wait for an event that Jesus said the Father had promised and that they had heard of from Jesus. The word that's used here for wait uh, is, is a word used only here in the New Testament, and it means to wait expectantly with a view to some known event. It's, it is the anticipation, this waiting is the anticipation of a future event that, that you're, you know about. It's not just sitting and waiting to see something, if something's going to happen. It's waiting for the thing to happen that you have in mind. And Jesus told the disciples exactly what event they were to anticipate while they waited. He also told them that that event would happen not many days from now. That means that, that the time between this, this declaration of Jesus and the fulfillment of the declaration was not measured in years or months or weeks. It was measured in days. Ten days, to be precise. Now, we must not miss how the disciples responded. Their reply to Jesus was a question, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Guys, Jesus had just told them what he was commanding them to wait for. But they missed it. They didn't show any acknowledgement of what he had said. The event for which they were still eagerly waiting was not the event for which he had just commanded them to wait. Doesn't that sound kind of familiar? Before his death, when Jesus told these same men that he had to suffer and be killed and be raised from the dead, how did they react? They argued about which one of them would be greatest in the kingdom. The first thing, of course, Peter, Peter said, no, that can't happen. But then later, he, he told them again, he must suffer and die and be raised from the dead. And they said, okay, which, which of us is going to be greatest in the kingdom? One of their mothers got involved. Before the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, his disciples were so fixated on the long-promised kingdom, they were so worried about which of them would have the greatest status in that kingdom, that it was as if they didn't even hear that he had just told them he had to suffer and die and be raised from the dead. And that had to happen in order for the kingdom to come. In order for the kingdom to come. It's very telling that the response of those same men here in Acts chapter 1 is fixated on the same event, the coming of Christ's kingdom on earth. And here yet again, there's something else that has to happen before that kingdom can be ushered in. Here yet again, they are so fixated on the promise of the kingdom that they don't seem to even hear or acknowledge which promise Jesus is talking about. 
<laughs> now listen carefully to how Jesus answers their question about the coming of the long-promised kingdom. He says, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. The word times in plural that's used here generally refers to long periods of time. And the word that's translated epochs in the New American Standard refers to a future period of time that is marked by characteristic circumstances like the last times, the end times, the messianic times. It would be very hard if you're paying attention to come to any other conclusion from what Jesus told the disciples here that the long-promised kingdom of God was not going to be ushered in anytime soon. A new epoch was indeed about to begin, very soon, days from then. But that epoch, that new age, would be marked by something very different than the restoration of the kingdom to Israel that the disciples were longing for. That's because God had an assignment for them before that would happen. And that which would mark out this next epoch of human history would be the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through the church of Jesus Christ to populate the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ. Jesus was very clear here. The disciples did not need to know and were not going to know when the kingdom of Messiah that was promised by the Old Testament prophets would happen. That's what they wanted to know. It's not what they needed to know. What the infant church of Jesus Christ very much needed to know is precisely what Jesus just told them. So after telling them what God was not going to reveal to them anytime soon, he finished his sentence by telling them again. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And those were the last words that the resurrected Jesus spoke to any human being face to face before he ascended bodily back to his, his Father's right hand, to his rightful place of glory. We hear a lot about the last words of Jesus at the cross and rightfully so. The one Greek word that we translate with three English words, it is finished, I think is quite possibly the most impactful word ever uttered on earth. But here in Acts chapter 1 are the last words that the resurrected Jesus spoke to anyone face to face before physically departing the earth and returning to his place of glory at his Father's right hand. Jesus has appeared and spoken to individuals since then, but not bodily, not physically. He has never set foot on this earth since the day recorded in Acts chapter 1. He's going to, and that's going to be amazing, but he hasn't yet. All right, so on that day when Jesus set aside the question that his disciples wanted to have answered, 
and instead answered a question they had not even asked, I think that should get our attention. <laughs> and, and, and like most believers who are just starting out, uh, just starting to see God's revelation to mankind through the, the opened eyes of a redeemed child of God, his disciples wanted to know about the end point of human history. That's the way most young believers and and most unchurched believers and most believers who are just getting into the Word, that's, that's what they usually gravitate toward. That's what I gravitated toward when I was a new, a new Christian. I want to know what's, how it's going to end. But what they needed to know right then was how God was going to equip them to live as Christ's ambassadors on earth now, before the end point of human history, before the King of Kings returns to establish his kingdom on earth and then to usher in the new heavens and the new earth, what they most needed to know, beloved, was the very same thing that you and I most need to know. And that is that the miraculous, supernatural equipping and power that we must have in order to act as Christ's ambassadors on earth until he comes back, is the power that we have only because God has poured out His Holy Spirit on His church, both individually and corporately. Verses 9 through 11 of Acts 1 tell us that after Jesus ascended from the earth and a cloud received Him out of their sight, the disciples stood there, likely with their mouths hanging open and staring up into the sky. Two men in white clothing, who might take to be angels, appeared beside them, and they said to them, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking up into the sky? <laughs> this Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Now, I don't know what the disciples, uh, the apostles were thinking at that moment. They had been expecting Jesus to stick around <laughs> and to usher in the kingdom of God on earth with them as his band of brothers ruling over the nations you know, at, at his direction. That was a promise they could sink their teeth into, right? But now he was gone. And instead of standing there hoping that maybe he would come back down, it was time for them to do what he had just commanded, to go back to Jerusalem and to wait for the most important thing that would ever happen to them from that day forward, the coming of the Holy Spirit so that by His power they would do even greater things than Jesus had done while He had been here. That's what Jesus promised to them in John 14. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go to the Father. He said, If I don't go... You're not going to do greater things. Jesus had to leave, and he had to send the Spirit in order for his disciples to do greater things than he had done the first time he was here. There are all kinds of reasons for that. I, again, heard Tim Keller talk about that some. He, he, he said, you know, while Jesus was in, in, in the form of a man here on earth, he was not omnipresent, right? The Holy Spirit is. 
He's in and with every single person, every single child of God all the time. He is our paraclete, our helper. Um, there are other reasons, but that is just one that struck me. All right, in verses 12 to 14, we learn that the disciples did what Jesus told them to do, yea, for them. They returned to Jerusalem and they stayed put. In the final verses of Luke's gospel, we see that their hearts were in a good place when they did that. Luke says, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and they were continually in the temple praising God with great joy. Here in Acts, we find that the 11 disciples went to the upper room in Jerusalem. Now, I have no reason, since it's the upper room, I have no reason to think that's not the same upper room that was in focus in John chapters 11 through 16 on the last day that Jesus was with his disciples before his death. Acts 1.14 says, These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Jesus' brothers, by the way, had not believed before the crucifixion and resurrection, and now they had believed. When God requires you to wait and not to act, prayer is a very good way for you to spend your time. Prayer is always a very good way for you to spend your time, you and me. But when God says, okay, it's time to wait, it's a marvelous time to, spend, to, to, to go to that prayer closet and spend time with him. Now, Luke tells us that the group of believers who were gathered there in Jerusalem with the disciples numbered about 120 persons. Verse 15 tells us that Peter stood up in the midst of those 120 brethren. He cited Psalm 69 and Psalm 109 to make the case from the Old Testament that the apostles needed a 12th man to replace Judas. I should be hearing my fellow Texas Aggies whooping at this point. Um, he laid out, Peter laid out what he understood as the prerequisites that had to be met by this new 12th apostle. And the essential, the essential prerequisite that it had to be someone who had been with Jesus and the original disciples from the beginning, from the time that John the Baptist was baptizing. The disciples put forward two men that fit that profile, Joseph and Matthias, and then they prayed and they said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. It's not a good place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. And that's how the chapter ends. And that's the one and only passage in the entire New Testament in which Matthias is ever mentioned. So what happened here? Well, I believe my brother Bob Deffenbaugh got this exactly right in his excellent sermon series on this book. There is nothing said anywhere in this chapter that indicates that the apostles were sinning or overstepping when they prayerfully cast lots to determine which man of the two that, that they believed were qualified would step into the apostolic role vacated by Judas. The passage says that those 11 men were continually devoting themselves to prayer. That's a pretty good way to be rightly inclined and, and, and sensitive to what God would have you do. 
I don't believe it was Peter's intention or anyone else's to take the reins out of God's hands here. Bob points out that the way they proceeded here was very carefully according to the old way. This is the way that they knew, right? If you look to the Old Testament, it's, it's very interesting how many times lots were cast, surrounded by much prayer, in order to discover, not to determine, but to discover God's will in a given matter. There is nothing in this passage that should lead us to believe that God did not control how the lot fell on that day. God controls everything. And the fact that Matthias isn't mentioned after this does not mean that he was not powerfully used by God. Have you ever noticed that most of the apostles are not mentioned after this? We know that does not mean that they weren't mightily used by God because in John chapter 15, what did Jesus say to all 11 of those men the night he was arrested? He said, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And I chose you so that you would produce much fruit and so that your fruit would remain. See, that means that God used every single one of those 11 men exactly according to his perfect will. And beloved, God is going to use every single one of you exactly according to his own perfect will, whether that means that your ministry is high profile or low profile, whether it means that a lot of people see it or very few people see it. You and I should not be comparing ourselves with each other when it comes to usefulness to God. That's a really foolish thing to do because God is the one who's calling the shots. And fame is worth absolute zero. As this book unfolds, Paul clearly becomes God's chosen apostle to bring the word of the cross to most of the Gentile world of that day and by the way, to every synagogue that he comes across in the process to the Jews. Paul, who failed Peter's prerequisite of not having been with Jesus, of having been with Jesus and the disciples throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, Paul, who at the time the resurrected Jesus laid hold of him when his name was still Saul of Tarsus, was the absolute antithesis of what anyone thought Jesus should be looking for in an apostle right? He was a militant enemy of Christ. Here's how I understand what's going on at the end of Acts chapter 1. And friends, it has everything to do with what's going to happen in Acts chapter 2. The apostles didn't make a mistake, but God was making a point. God had told these men to wait expectantly for the promised outpouring of the Holy Spirit who would empower Christ's newborn church to explode the good news into the world. They mostly waited, but they were convinced that God wanted them to take care of this one matter to fill the vacated apostolic place of Judas. I believe God condescended to let them do what they prayerfully set out to do here and I believe he answered their prayer by landing the lot on the person of the two most suitable for the task. And I believe he used Matthias. But he was making a point. And as this all unfolds, and as they were about to see the next day, 
what they most needed to be doing in Jerusalem was not getting their ducks in a row. They, what they most needed to be doing was watching and waiting with eager anticipation for the fulfillment of the promise of the Holy Spirit. That fulfillment happened just 10 days later, and it's the very next event recorded in the book of Acts. And from that point forward, even to this day, the way that God leads and equips and empowers His church is not by the casting of lots. It is by the working of the Holy Spirit in every heart that the Holy Spirit indwells. And in the spiritual household of God, which is the church, the pillar and support of the truth in the world. In Acts chapter 9, after Jesus called Paul to be his chosen instrument, he also instructed another man named Ananias to give Paul his marching orders on Christ's behalf. In Acts 9.17, Ananias said to Paul, Brother Saul, his name hadn't changed yet, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me to you that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. That is what qualified Paul for his apostolic ministry. He was called and chosen by Jesus Christ, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the same thing that qualifies you for your ministry every single day of your life. You were called and chosen by Jesus Christ and filled with the Holy Spirit. You've been indwelled. Did you know that every single believer is indwelled by the Holy Spirit? In Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, Paul says that to, to all the believers he's talking to, you, after listening the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him by the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a down payment of your inheritance with a view of the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. He says, you heard the message, you believed the message about your salvation, and God sealed you with his indwelling Holy Spirit as the down payment of your inheritance, your eternal inheritance. Every Christian is indwelled by the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, all the time from the moment of belief. I want to wrap up here by just revisiting real quickly again what we want to know and what we need to know. I mentioned that when I was a new believer, what I most wanted to know was prophecy. I was grabbing every book I could find on prophecy. My observation is that, again, that that's the one category of biblical truth that most captures the attention of new believers and believers who are just starting to get familiar with the Bible. And I'm convinced there's nothing wrong with that. Um, that hope of the coming kingdom of God and of the, of the eternal state, that's... That's the anchor of our souls. It's supposed to get our attention. But beloved, what the members of that brand new church of Jesus Christ most needed to know on the day of Jesus' ascension into heaven is the very same thing that you and I most need to know right here, right now, and every single day of our lives on this earth. We need to know about the miraculous handoff that our Savior and King promised to His infant church that day 2,000 years ago and then fulfilled 10 days later. Because we, you and I, are still living every day of our lives 
under the same paradigm that those believers were. We need to know that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, has handed off the ongoing creation and equipping and empowering of his church to the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And because that makes us utterly and constantly dependent on the Holy Spirit, I have a question. What do dependent people do? They depend. I've mentioned this before, but in Unger's Bible Dictionary, it was written 100 years ago, there's this definition of prayer. Prayer is the acknowledgement of our dependence on God in all things. That's a great definition. Whether it's adoration, confession, thanksgiving, or supplication, which is request, acts, A-C-T-S, categories of prayer. Whatever category of prayer it is, we are acknowledging our absolute dependence on God for all things in all things. Because the Holy Spirit is our power for the Christian life, that means that we as dependent people need to depend. We need to be in prayer. Prayer must be at the very foundation of our daily lives. Because that dependence, that attitude and, and practice of dependence, that's how the work of the Spirit just, just takes us over. He's the one who brings that about. But, but know that that's, that's the greatest application that I can give you for this message. You and I, we need to be prayerful children of God. Loving Father, thank you for this, uh, this astonishing opening chapter of the book of Acts. This, <laughs> the history of the spreading flame and the flame of the Spirit given to the church. The Spirit of fire in Christ's church. Father, we, we look forward to all the rest that we're going to see in this marvelous book. And we pray that it would not be just information gathering. We pray, Father, that you would, you would work in our hearts, humble us, make us ready to be mightily and powerfully used by you the way that that first generation of Christians was used. That the gospel of Christ and the kingdom of our great Savior might spread like wildfire in our generation throughout this world. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.